Welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. I am Dr. Nicole Lowe, and with me is Dr. Stephanie Edmonds. We are both PhD-prepared nurses and the founders of Woman-Centered Health. Join us as we talk with health professionals and researchers who can help you improve your communication with patients about sexual and reproductive health. Please visit our website to learn more and connect with us on social media by going to www.womancenteredhealth.com. and welcome to the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. Today we are speaking with Dr. April Prunty. Dr. Prunty is recently graduated PhD nurse and an experienced educator. So full disclosure, we're very good friends with April, but one of the reasons we are good friends with her is because she is super nerdy like us. And April's dissertation was on weight stigma, and she is working on publishing her findings now, which are super interesting. So we invited her to be on the podcast so that we could have her share what she's learned and how her findings can translate into improving clinician-patient communication. As always, before we interview Dr. Prunty, we want to make our monthly pitch to become a patron of the Woman Centered Health Podcast by going to www.patreon.com WCH, where you can get our lovely show notes, or you can find out more on our website at www.womancenteredhealth.com. We are so close to our monthly goal, and we would love to have your extra support for just $5 a month. And as always, if you love this podcast, please tell your colleagues and give us a five-star review on iTunes. Thanks. So hi, April. Can we call you April? <laughs> you, can, you can call me Dr. April. Dr. Okay. So we want to thank you for being a guest on our podcast today. We always ask our guests to provide a little detail about your background. Um, so like your clinical experience, your educational background, and how you got to where you are today. All right. So I'm a nurse now. I'll say that wasn't always my background. So I actually have a Bachelor of Arts in athletic training and exercise science. So I was always interested in health, and that's the degree that I initially pursued. And then I ended up doing an accelerated Master's of Science in Nursing program and finished that a little over 10 years ago. And then last December, so I've had my PhD officially for two months. So I finished that in nursing. My clinical experience, so I worked, I started working in a medical ICU first and then a surgical ICU. I did a little bit of work doing home visits for open heart patients that we had seen in the ICU. So when they went home to recover, I did that. And then I actually started teaching in 2007, so almost 13 years ago, or I guess 13 years ago. I was an undergraduate teaching assistant kind of fell in love with teaching and that sparked my interest to kind of try to get my foot in the door. And then I taught clinical for a couple of different colleges at close to where I was working at the time. And then, you know, my love for education grew and then started teaching full-time probably about 10 years ago. Awesome. So the other big question we like to ask is what informs your perspective? So in other words, why do you do what you do and what is most valuable to you? And so I think, like I mentioned, I had this sort of love of education really early on. I couldn't quite put my finger on it. I have educators in my family, and I don't know, I think I like the idea of sort of humility that education brings. And I think this is why I love education and research. I think not knowing answers and is humbling, and I think it's exciting to sort of be vulnerable in the sense that 
you know, we don't have all the answers, but that we have the power to find them and search for them. And I think both of those things are, or, you know, that idea is sort of rooted in education and research. So, and I, and, you know, and I like sharing that with other people. So. What a beautiful way to describe your love for teaching. Thanks. All right. So today we're going to talk to April about weight stigma. So let's jump right in. So you talked a little bit about what informed your perspective as far as becoming a teacher and an educator and a researcher. And we're just curious what inspired you or interested you about looking into weight stigma? Yeah, that's a good question. I'll say I, I don't know exactly the answer to that question, but I'll sort of tell you how I landed on it. So I... So growing up, as long as I can remember, I was always an athlete. So it was not uncommon for me to be at practice multiple days a week. You know, there was at one point where I was going from tennis, driving to soccer practice, you know, in another town, and then coming home late at night to do homework or whatever in school. So I was always busy. I was always active. I was interested, I think, in in being active and sort of health from that perspective. I think at that time I naively thought of health as, you know, being active and had sort of a limited perspective on what that looked like. But the older I got, the more I realized and I think was aware, you know, visually aware of the people around me and people that were on my team and comments that were made about body size and which is common among female athletes all the time you know and I don't ever remember being insecure about my body size or caring much about it but as I got older it just was always there it was always a point of conversation at home or among friends or you know, it was always about weight, it seemed like, oh, I've gained weight, or, you know, I've had friends whose parents put them on a soy milk diet, you know, I mean, just sort of bizarre things, you know, my parents dieted, friends, family, I I remember at one point, I was, I was playing soccer in college, and I, this is when ephedra was around, and I would go to practice for a couple hours, and then I took ephedra and then I would go run after practice. And I remember like there was a period of time where there was like three days that I didn't eat. And I remember thinking, oh, I look so thin. This is so great. And then in hindsight, I was so unhealthy. And then, you know, I had the heart palpitations and all the symptoms that go along with it. And I remember just thinking kind of, why did I get to this point where I was so sort of focused on my weight and sort of how I looked and, you know, what did that mean to me at that time? It was always sort of in the back of my mind. And I, and I, as far as, you know, selecting it as a research topic, I think I had this experience. So when I was in high school, I was having knee pain and I went to see our primary care provider at the time. And I distinctly remember this conversation. He said, well, he said, you know, weight, excess weight can cause knee pain. You know, it wouldn't hurt if you lost some weight. And at the time I was playing basketball five days a week. And then I was also playing club soccer, which was at least three days a week. I was athletic. I mean, it it, it just sort of came out of nowhere. And it, or it was finally at that point where he sort of suggested that it was my fault. But then I remember thinking, well, I'm 
you know, I'm active so many days a week. Why is this happening? And it turned out I had horrible patellar tendonitis. And it wasn't until weeks later that I saw a specialist and got finally diagnosed. And that that stuck, the conversation stuck with me. And I think through my athletic training degree and sort of working with athletes, it just weight always came up and I was always around it. And I think it just something didn't seem right. And I sort of fell into it the more I read. And I think once I got into the PhD program and actually took a class where I was able to explore health and decision-making, it just sort of evolved. You know, it was probably always there. And I think it just took a while for me to sort of really land on that topic specifically. But yeah, I don't know. Yeah, no, I like it. So then extending from that, what is weight stigma then? So weight stigma in its sort of simplest form, I'll say that there's two components to weight stigma. So when we talk about weight stigma, we talk about the devaluation of somebody, of an individual or a group, but it's because of their weight or their body size. There's two things that we look at. So there's weight self-stigma. So that is the devaluation of yourself due to your weight or body size, and then any behaviors or actions that are sort of guided by those beliefs. And it can actually be your perceived or your actual body size. So you can look in the mirror and think that you don't like your body size, that it's larger than you want or that you would like, even though you're not considered, you know, you're not considered obese. And then enacted weight stigma is any bias or judgment, prejudice, discrimination towards an individual or a group based on their size. So if you think of enacting, it's you're you're doing something to somebody because of their weight or their body size. And the way I like to think about it, I have a little picture I always draw when I think about weight stigma. So it's a stick person and there's three arrows. So there's two arrows pointing towards the person. So they can be a victim of enacted weight stigma, or they can internalize or self-stigmatize. So those are the two arrows pointing towards that person. And then there's an arrow pointing away from that person. So they can also be guilty of enacting weight stigma onto others. So those are sort of the ways that weight stigma can affect an individual. How I like to think about it. All right. So before you did your dissertation research, what had you learned about weight stigma and how many people have weight stigma and what are the consequences of it? So before I really got into my dissertation research, I was pretty naive, I think, about weight stigma. Like I mentioned, I always had this sort of sneaking this feeling or suspicion that sort of something wasn't right. I was never happy with using BMI as a metric, which everybody does. And it it just didn't seem to make sense to me. Um, But I really couldn't quite put my finger on why it didn't make sense. And then once I started reading more about weight stigma, I thought, yes, this is it. This is the problem. This is exactly what I see, you know, and have been thinking of. And then it's sort of all these things come flooding back to you. And you remember all these circumstances or people that you know that have been mistreated because of their weight and flood of things, which we can talk about. But so how many people have weight stigma? So early literature predicted like a prevalence rate of like 12% of the population had weight stigma. That has since increased pretty substantially to around 45 or 50%. I think that's still pretty low in terms of, you know, the prevalence of weight stigma, but the research is still in its infancy, I would say. And we're, we're still really trying to figure out what's the best metric, what's the best way to determine whether or not you have weight stigma, you've been a victim of weight stigma or subject to weight stigma. So there's still a lot of work to do in that in that area. 
And what, so I don't want you to talk about your findings of your research yet. So what was sort of found in other literature before you did yours that showed what the harmful issues with weight stigma were? Oh, so really early on, we saw a lot of the literature showed this connection, this link to weight stigma and mostly behavioral health, psychological symptoms. So depression, anxiety, low self-esteem, lower quality of life. Those were some of the things that the early links were found. There's some studies that um, have suggested links between physiologic health outcomes, but if you actually read what they measured and what they looked at, that's, that's not exactly true. So again, there's, there's a lot of work to determine what the consequences are physiologically of weight stigma. And I, th- I think a huge part of that, and we can get into this a little bit, but I think a huge part of that is the role of stress in weight stigma and long-term weight stigma. A lot of the literature, there's parallels to uh, people who've been stigmatized because of race and consequences from being racially discriminated against or you know stigmatized because of you know, a certain race or even gender, gender identity. So a lot of similarities there. And one thing that I just want to maybe clear up for our listeners, and I think you've been talking to this, so I just want to make it more explicit, is mm-hmm. how is what you're talking about, you know, as far as like consequences and and who's doing this, how do providers play a role in this or what's happening at the clinician level within weight stigma? Yeah, so that's a good question. So unfortunately, clinicians, and I say clinicians broadly because it's everybody, are really, really big culprits of weight stigma. And it's it's not malicious. It's it's not, I mean, you know, clinicians we're well-meaning individuals, but what we see at the provider level, at the clinician level, is that weight is typically blamed on the individual, assuming that any individual has total control over their body weight, shape, and size, and that if they have a body weight, shape, or size that's larger or bigger than what is quote-unquote normal, then that person lacks willpower, is lazy, is non-compliant with recommendations, probably doesn't exercise, doesn't eat well. And those are a lot of assumptions that sort of continue to fuel this weight stigma and this personal blame. And that's kind of what perpetuates this vicious cycle of weight stigma leading to depression and anxiety and weight cycling in terms of uh, fad dieting, calorie cutting, and then weight regain and going back to the provider. And while you didn't exercise enough or you didn't try hard enough and back and forth. So that's typically what we see at the provider level. I think one of the most common things that's recommended, I mean, everybody you talk to, you know, you need to lose weight. What are you going to do? You're going to cut your calories down and you're going to exercise like crazy. And that's in and of itself has like a less than 5% success rate over time, you know, which is horrendous in, in medicine or, you know, healthcare to have a 5% success rate of something. I mean, you'd never prescribe a drug that had less than a 5% success rate or a treatment or a surgical intervention. You know, why would you do that? But yet we still recommend that for weight loss. But I don't think we are to the point yet where we understand, you know, metabolically how detrimental that is to our health long term. But yet, it's kind of the best we have right now. So let's talk about your dissertation study now. So can you tell us what your the goals of your study were and what you did? 
Yeah, so I had three aims or three goals with my study. I wanted to um, more comprehensively describe how many people were affected by weight stigma. And I actually looked at both enacted weight stigma and weight self-stigma. And the goal was to get as big of a sample, you know, as always, as big of a sample as possible and as diverse of a sample as possible. Because another goal of my study was to compare those varying levels of weight stigma by different factors. So demographic characteristics, body weight, and then also body weight attribution. So part of the study was looking at what you attribute weight to. So do you attribute weight to being a personal responsibility, to genetic factors, to environmental factors, and sort of how that is compared to your levels of enacted stigma and weight self-stigma. And then finally, I wanted to look at the relationship or any associations between enacted weight stigma, weight self-stigma, and then health outcomes. And they're self-reported health outcomes, so you know we can talk about limitations with that. But I looked at health conditions, certain health conditions that were quote-unquote obesity-related, and then also health behavior, which was like exercise, dieting, and then healthcare utilization. So uh, frequency of seeing a provider, delaying or avoiding care, which is really common with people with higher levels of weight stigma is that they are less likely to seek care from a provider or delay care, which again, potentially perpetuates these poor health outcomes. So those are sort of the three goals of the study. But I ended up developing a survey and sent that out. I had a couple different recruitment strategies, but I ended up with a sample just shy of about 4,000. And I had a not a terribly lengthy survey, but what I ended up looking at was weight bias internalization using a common instrument, reliable and valid instrument. And then I looked at enacted weight stigma. So for enacted weight stigma, I actually asked a series of five yes, no questions and looked at the sort of results across those questions. And I can tell you what those questions are if you want to talk about those. And then I also included a scale that looked at, it was called the beliefs about obese persons. And it was a scale that looked at the attributions for obesity. So what do you associate or what do you attribute the cause of obesity to, like I mentioned earlier? So is it personal responsibility? Is it environment? And with that scale in particular, the way it was scored, the higher you scored on that instrument, the more likely you believe that obesity was under personal control or that you were personally responsible for your body weight or body size. And that was important, I think, contextually when looking at weight stigma. When we get into talking a little bit about the questions that I asked, um, there were some interesting findings using that instrument that I think need to be explored a little bit further. So first, that is an amazing sample size. So job well Mm -hmm. done there. And then, yeah, I would love to hear more about the yes, no questions. Yeah. To estimate prevalence, you have to get to the point where you can say, yes, something is present. No, it's not. And there weren't great instruments out there to help us do that when we looked at weight stigma. And it's it's tough to estimate because you know there's a lot of room for interpretation. So what's commonly used in the literature are three questions. Have you ever been discriminated against because of your weight? Have you ever been teased or treated unfairly because of your weight? And have you ever been treated or something? But the estimates using those questions were really, really low. Like, I had mentioned 12% earlier, and it just didn't seem to make sense. It it had to be higher than that. So what I actually ended up doing was using five questions, 
And the five questions were, have you ever been discriminated against by anyone because of your weight? Have you ever been mistreated? Have you ever been teased, made to feel bad or bullied? Have you ever been treated differently? Or have you ever been treated less well than others? Again, by anyone because of your weight. And expanding it to five questions allowed us to really look at enacted weight stigma more comprehensively and sort of what we had read in the literature and how people interpret weight stigma and the experience of weight stigma. So those are the five questions that I ended up using. And interestingly enough, I don't know if you want me to talk about my results a little bit here now, but the prevalence rate just across those five questions alone was from 15 to 47%. So significantly different, I'm, I'm not saying statistically significantly different here, but big range of questions um, of prevalence across the questions. And I think that, you know, sort of tells us we, we need to find a better way to, to ask these questions and make sure that we're getting at what we need to get at in terms of determining enacted weight stigma or people who have experienced weight stigma. If you just want to share your other results, that would be great. So yeah, so I mentioned the range of prevalence across the enacted weight stigma question. So again, so the lowest prevalence of weight stigma was actually came from the question, have you ever been discriminated against because of your weight? That only yielded a 15% prevalence rate. There is some suggestion in the literature that the word discrimination itself might not be appropriate because of misinterpretation. So people may know, you know, I... Yes, I was treated poorly, but I wasn't discriminated against. And they sort of minimize because discrimination is such a strong word or it suggests something as strong as racial discrimination. They can't really make that parallel to weight or they don't see it as weight. Um, So that yielded the lowest prevalence at 15%. The highest prevalence actually came from the question, have you ever been teased, made to feel bad or bullied? And that was 47%. So overall, 47% of the uh, sample had answered yes to that question. So that was enacted weight stigma. Um, When we look at weight self-stigma, so people who internalize or have, you know, devalue themselves, that was about 24% of the population. Our study was actually the first to estimate prevalence of weight self-stigma or internalized stigma. We ended up, so the scale is a continuous scale that we used. And again, we had to figure out a way to say, yes, it's present. No, it's not. So working with a statistician, we figured out a way to do that with the instrument and were able to come up with a sound measure. But 24% of our sample had high weight self-stigma. I just want to pause you for one second, April. So you said that Mm-hmm. with the statistician that they had a high weight self-sigma. So are you then saying that people fell out into different categories, like there was high versus low, or was this a present or not present? Yeah, so with weight self-stigma, the instrument is on a continuous scale. So basically what that means is all we could deduce from that is my score is X, your score is Y, and mine is either higher or lower than yours. There was really no way, it's all relational. So there's really no way to say, I have high self-stigma, you have low self-stigma. It's just mine's higher or lower than yours. But in order to determine the prevalence, we had to figure out a way to say whether or not it was 
present or not. So what we actually did was we dichotomized the results at the middle, the theoretical mean of the instrument. So we were able to put people into two groups, high or low, and in this sample, 24% had higher weight self-stigma. Okay, thank you for that clarification. Yeah, so again, you know, we had one way of looking at weight self-stigma. We have, we're looking at 24% of the sample. And then with enacted weight stigma, we have a variety of responses, but it's present. Um, and overall, our sample, so going back to enacted weight stigma, our sample, I think it was 54%. something like that said yes to at least one question. So they had said yes to either being discriminated, being teased, being bullied, being mistreated, or less well than others. So about half, which was higher than any other study that's reported, enacted weight stigma. So again, I think it sort of begs the question, and how are we evaluating this, and what's the best way to determine the prevalence of weight stigma? Other part of my study, I had mentioned this earlier, was including the belief about obese persons. So again, on this instrument, basically the way that it was dichotomized is based on the score. And the lower your score on this instrument indicated that you believed that obesity was under personal control or that the individual had personal control over their weight or body size. 80% of the sample believed that obesity is under personal control. We saw that uh, a little over 83, it was like 84 point something percent of persons with high weight self-stigma believed obesity was under personal control. And then 73% of people who indicated that they have been discriminated against also believe that obesity was under personal control. So I think it's interesting to look at if, you know, if you are somebody who believes obesity is to be under personal control, how that affects your level or perception of internalizing weight stigma or self-stigmatizing and then um, being subject to enacted weight stigma or experiencing weight stigma. Yeah, I mean, I think that makes incredible sense. It's just interesting when you think about then how how internalized and pervasive weight messaging is. Mm-hmm. And then the other thing that I want, and maybe this would help our listeners too, is could you give just like a few sample characteristics, like male versus female, just so maybe yeah. they could put some characteristics to your numbers you have? So the total sample was I had 3,821. So like I said, just under 4,000 people. I had about 19% male, 80% female, and then 1% that identified as non-binary. I had three age categories. So I had 72% of the population that fell. So they were all adults, so 18 or older to be eligible. But um, the majority fell between ages 18 and 44. I had about a quarter of the sample that fell between 45 and 64. And then small 5% was greater than or equal to 65 years old. 86% non-Hispanic whites, 4% Latino or Hispanic American, 2% Black African uh, 3% Asian, 3 mixed, and 2 other race or ethnicity. It was pretty evenly split uh, in terms of education. So about a third had a high school degree or less. A third had a bachelor's degree. 
and then uh, 30% had postgraduate education, and then 9% sort of fell into that associates or vocational category. Interestingly, um, I did collect height and weight information to collect body mass index, so self-reported, uh, with obvi- which obviously comes with some limitations, but had 2% that were in the underweight category. So for BMI, again, CDC guidelines are underweight. Uh, it's kilograms per meter squared. So again, height and weight, but underweight is 18 and a half or or less than 18.5. Normal weight falls into the 18.5 to 24.9. Overweight is 25 to 29.9. And then obese is 30 or greater for body mass index. So I had 2% underweight, 40% normal weight, 26% overweight, and 31% um, obese. So that was my sample. Did you have any, and maybe you're going to speak to this, some interesting Mm -hmm. findings based on maybe some groups or some sample characteristics? I did. So we ran some tests to look at sort of the odds of weight self-stigma. So I'll talk about weight self-stigma first, and then I'll go into enacted weight stigma. But we found that the odds of weight self-stigma were higher for women we're higher for people who believe obesity is under personal control. We're higher for people who are younger, so people who fell into that 18 to 44 age category, and then for individuals who were overweight or obese or fell into that BMI category. So looking at, now we'll talk about enacted weight stigma. So the odds of enacted weight stigma. And for this question, we just looked at discrimination. So this was the question, have you ever been discriminated against because by anyone because of your weight? And we opted to use this question because this is one that was most commonly used in the literature and we wanted to be able to compare to previous studies. So people who responded yes to having been discriminated against because of their weight were women, Latino or Hispanic Americans, and interestingly, people who were underweight, overweight, or obese. One of, I think, the most interesting findings also were that the odds of enacted weight stigma due to discrimination are lower for people who believe obesity is under personal control. So if you believe that obesity is up to the individual or people are personally responsible for their body weight, you are less likely to report experiencing weight-based discrimination. And I say that's interesting because several years ago, I was working with my advisor on a study and I conducted the qualitative interviews for the study. And in one of the one of our questions, in, in hindsight, it was not the best question, but I think, you know, looking at it now, I don't know. But it was, have you ever been discriminated against because of your weight? And overwhelmingly, the participant said no. But then throughout the interview gave example after example of how they had gotten divorced because their spouse had was so mean to them because they had gained weight or they they weren't dating or, you know, it's just example after example of how they had in fact been discriminated against or mistreated because of their weight. And I think, you know, it, it begs the question, if you are somebody who believes that you're personally responsible for your weight, 
are you less likely to recognize and report being discriminated against because you believe it's your fault? So you can't be discriminated against if it's your fault. So I think that was really interesting. I had to sort of do a double take when it, you know, when we got the results back on that, but then it just, it, it makes sense. And like I said, it begs the question, are you oppressed and less likely to recognize discrimination as such? Yeah, that does take a minute to, to process. Mm-hmm. I know so much about April's dissertation, so I'm liking Nicole asking questions <laughs> about her study because I already sort of know all the answers, but you presented a lot of your findings. What are some kind of key takeaways on like implications, especially for practicing clinicians based on your research? You know, just in general, I think communication with with patients is important. And as clinicians, we have to be mindful of how we're communicating and what message we're sending to our patient or to the people that we're taking care of or providing care for. So I think preliminarily, we see that our words can be detrimental to the health of our patients. And given that weight stigma is so prevalent, and when we believe in this personal responsibility attribution for weight, it really has negative consequences for our patients in several ways. So like I had mentioned, higher rates of depression, higher rates of anxiety, but also they're less likely to come see us as clinicians. They're less likely to uh, trust us. They're less likely to heed our advice. And that's not what we want as clinicians. So, you know, I think we really have to be mindful about the scale, this number on the scale. You know, I remember I went in for, I don't know, I was sick or something. I went in and they're like, you know, go ahead and step on the scale and we're going to weigh you. And I remember thinking like, why the hell does this matter? You know, I'm not even here for something like that, you know, and, and there's so many stories that people have about that. It's just, there are instances and conditions, yes, that I fully acknowledge that weight can impact, but it's not the only piece of the puzzle. And I think we have to be mindful about health and well-being. And there's more to it than just weight and that number on the scale. I think we have to recognize that body size is not exclusively a personal choice, or a personal responsibility. There's genetics, there's biology, there's environment. There's so much that we can't control that affect an individual and you know, I think we have to back away from the scale and really look at the person as a whole. And I had mentioned earlier that, well, you know, if you want to lose weight, just diet and exercise, you know, well, what does that mean? What does that look like? I I don't think as providers, we do a good job of, well, what is good exercise? What is a good diet? And, you know, we sometimes make the assumption that, well, if if this person is overweight or this person is obese, then they're not having a good diet or they're not eating a good diet and they're not exercising and that's not the case. So I think we just have to be mindful of the whole person and, and sort of check our biases at the door and and just do a better job of investigating the other factors that contribute to an individual's health. And to add a couple points to that too, I think a lot of times you know, we as a society, and I'm sure that clinicians are equal, can be equally as guilty, is that if someone appears thin or you know their BMI looks healthy, that we assume we don't need to have those conversations with them because you know, they look a certain way. But really, they too could also have very unhealthy behaviors. And then the other point I wanted to bring up was, yeah, you had mentioned that 
there's other reasons that go into why someone may be the size that they are. And interestingly, Stephanie and I have a podcast on trauma-informed care. And then I've also been doing a lot of reading about trauma-informed care for my position now and talks about how weight can be a physical manifestation of like a coping mechanism because of trauma. So Mm -hmm. one story I was reading was about how a woman had gained 100 pounds in a year and it was because she was sexually assaulted. And that was, and it was kind of twofold. One, eating became a coping skill, but then also in her mind, she felt that if she was bigger, that then she would be undesirable and therefore at less risk of being sexually assaulted in the future. And so weight is something that has a lot of layers to it, like you said, and you know, we need to ask. And for that girl saying, you just need to lose some weight and eat a little better and exercise, that's that's a complete disservice to that individual. So it's interesting you bring that up. So one of, I think, my, the best books I've ever read actually sort of informed my dissertation, and it was Irving Goffman, Stigma, and it, was, it talked about uh, a spoiled identity. So having a spoiled identity as somebody who is uh, less desirable and less valuable as a member of society because of one problem or another but in that book there is and a couple articles have actually referenced this but he talks about escaping stigma and motivation to escape stigma and that's exactly what you were talking about with your trauma-informed care and that individual who saw eating as a way to sort of escape or avoid being in that situation again so she would be less desirable less likely to be assaulted same thing so I'm I'm less likely to um, be stigmatized if I do X, Y, Z behaviors, even though they may be counterproductive to health or, you know, other, other things. Well, but then at the same time, it's almost like she holds that stigma that Mm -hmm. being overweight is, is undesirable. Mm -hmm. And there, therefore Mm -hmm. she becomes undesirable to herself. If that, makes mm-hmm. sense. So yeah. that's just a really bad situation I yeah. think to be in. Yeah, exactly. And I think, you know, one of my I'll say hypotheses for my study, but um was really looking at how internalized stigma or weight self stigma affects health because my suspicion is that it's far worse and more detrimental to health than any other form of stigma. And you know, certainly something I would like to explore further, but but it, it's tough. It's tough to to get at and to have people recognize. And but yeah, it, it's I think definitely more detrimental. Well, and I think too. It, I mean, not saying that it's the same or to minimize this, but they talk a lot within the circle of maternal mortality or specifically mm-hmm. Black maternal mortality in looking at internalized racism as really causing these prolonged stress responses that then impact mother-baby. Again, I'm not trying to equate the two or say one's more serious than the other, but it's interesting that, again, you have something that's stigma, right? This isn't something that we see or we're eating or these invisible structures that we're being exposed to that are having these long-term internal consequences that are causing these 
increased cortisol levels, you know, more mm-hmm. inflammation in our bodies, these stress responses that are having deleterious effects on our health in the long run. Yeah, you're exactly right. And I think too, you had mentioned this earlier, um, but before I forget, I think an important takeaway as a clinician or as a provider is take away the appearance of somebody. Everybody should be counseled on a quality diet. Everybody should be counseled on exercise. Everybody should be counseled on ways to take care of mental health. And I mean, that's across the board. It shouldn't just be reserved for people who appear different than what you expect. And and I think that's an important takeaway for clinicians and, you know, something that we can certainly do a better job focusing on. Well, and that really fits into with, I mean, Stephanie and I have had this conversation all along with our podcast. I think when we first started out, we had this idea that, oh, if someone presents this way, then then this is what you should do to provide woman-centered care. And I think time and time again, as much as sometimes we'll kind of push that envelope with the people we're interviewing, it always comes back to, no, you should just assume everyone has this or is exposed to this or like you should just talk to everybody regardless of what they present as about healthy eating and weight and all these Mm -hmm. things well i think even you know beyond that i mean and this this is getting a little off topic but you know what is healthy eating what is exercise and i think that's where the sort of this patient centeredness comes in so what does it mean to them and exploring that a little bit more with them versus i am the provider do as i say listen to what I'm telling you. And if you don't, then you're non-compliant and therefore it's your fault that whatever, you know, something happened. So I wanted to ask, well, I guess let me ask this one first. So in talking about, you know, specifically about clinicians and, Mm -hmm. and talking about weight or being stigmatizing, I know like along your path and working on your dissertation, you shared some stories about what happened to you personally. Mm -hmm. um, And what, but I know people along the way have told you about some experiences they've had with their clinicians um, about stigmatizing them for weight. So could you just share some of those stories? And I mean, I think that even I can share stories too, but if you could share those stories with us, just so we can see what that looks like. Yeah, you know, I, and I'll say everybody has a story. I have not found a person yet that I've spoken to about this topic who hasn't shared something. So one story I think that was, could have been pretty detrimental to health. Um, There was a, a woman who had gone to her provider because she was increasingly short of breath and had gone to the provider and they said, well, you need to exercise more you know, you're obese, you need to exercise more. And she thought, okay. So she was exercising and still felt short of breath, went to a different provider. Provider said the same thing. You know, well, how much have you been exercising? Well, you know, take the stairs instead of taking the elevator or whatever. By the fourth provider, they finally did some blood work and her hemoglobin was a seven. And what had happened was she was going through menopause and had been hemorrhaging And no provider had asked about it. She didn't report it or anything. But she ended up needing two units of blood because she had abnormal uterine bleeding. But it took four providers and three months to diagnose that. And every single one up until the last one had told her that, no, you needed to exercise. And and the appointment stopped there. And, I mean, she could have died. 
Uh, there was another woman, similar situation, short of breath, went into the doctor, was really fatigued, lethargic, same thing, you need exercise, that'll help your energy, um, ended up having a pulmonary embolism, a saddle pulmonary embolism, which was bad news all around. So same thing, multiple providers. I hear, so I share two stories of people who had higher BMIs, and I will tell you that I hear the same stories from people who have lower BMIs. So actually, after my survey went out, I had participants email, I had an overwhelming number of people email me, had taken my survey, and then I want to share this story with you and people being teased because they were too thin, or you can't participate in this sport or that sport because you're too thin. And, you know, I think that's something too um, that we need to think about is weight stigma is not a problem, not just a problem for people who are labeled as overweight or obese. It's a problem for everybody. I mean, the majority of my sample was normal weight individuals, 40% normal weight, but 80% of the sample, I mean, you know, across that sample had reported believing that obesity is under personal control, higher rates of weight, of weight stigma. Um, so I think we have to think about this beyond overweight and obesity. So again, it happens on both sides. And, and I could tell stories all afternoon and they're, you know, equally as terrible, but everybody, everybody has them. So your third aim was looking at health outcomes or health issues that people had and mm-hmm. associating that with their level of weight stigma. Can you talk about those findings a bit more? Yeah, yep. So I'll put a little caveat on this. All of these were self-reported. So keep that in mind as we talk about these health outcomes. But the the third aim of my dissertation was to look at the association between weight stigma and adverse health outcomes. So what I saw in my sample, so I'll say, I'll start with weight self-stigma again. So of individuals with higher weight self-stigma, so again, self-stigma, 30% had hypertension or reported hypertension, 14% reported elevated glucose or hyperglycemia, 17% had thyroid disorder, about a quarter reported chronic pain. A little over half reported anxiety and depression, and then about 13% reported eating disorders. When we look at, again, those with higher weight self-stigma, 40% reported intense dieting or exercise for weight loss. About 27% reported that they were more likely to use or had used over-the-counter weight loss medications. 88%, say it again, 88%, indicated or reported that they had delayed or avoided seeking health care. And then 36% actually reported that they had a medical concern that had been disregarded and was blamed on weight. So you go in for a sore throat and it's blamed on weight. Or you go in for shortness of breath, it's a problem because of your weight. So 36% of the individuals with high weight self-stigma reported that. I think I suspected that, but it was pretty overwhelming to see that. So when we look at uh, discrimination, so enacted weight stigma from discrimination, I won't give you all the percentages because it's a lot. I'll just kind of touch on a lot of them. But we saw hypertension, elevated cholesterol or elevated lipids, uh, hyperglycemia, thyroid disorder, actually arthritis, chronic pain. We actually saw infertility, higher rates of infertility, anxiety, depression, and eating disorders again. And then 84% now, so those who had 
enacted weight stigma from discrimination or who had been discriminated against because of their weight, 84% had reported delaying or avoiding seeking health care. And I think, I mean, that to me, that statistic in and of itself is so overwhelming and I think alarming too, in the sense that that many people are avoiding care because of weight-based discrimination. So I think one of the things that's important to point out too, so when we did these analyses, we controlled for demographic characteristics, we controlled for body weight characteristics. So you know, as we control for all of these things, we still see significant associations between these health outcomes and weight stigma. The chronic pain, the infertility, the hyperglycemia, anxiety, depression, all of these things, odds are much higher for people who report weight-based discrimination or weight self-stigma. You know, and I think that's something as clinicians that we have to think about, you know, again, if we friends, loved ones, patients, whoever we're talking to, how we how we talk about their body and their health, and it really, really matters and can be detrimental to health. So, and and then we see it across BMI categories. So this is not again something that is just exclusive for people who are labeled as overweight or obese. And I don't know if this bears going into the weeds and bringing this up, but I know, Stephanie, you've done all, uh, quite a bit of extensive work looking at BMI, and I know that, well, both of your advisor did a lot of work with that, and, and I know that she felt strongly against using BMI as a measure of health, and so I didn't know if, you know, would it be worth having a somewhat brief conversation about why it is a poor indicator of health? You know, I think really simplistically, so the calculation itself, I I think I'd mentioned this earlier, but it only takes into account height and weight. So we, we don't look at total composition of body. So we don't look at, so using BMI, we don't look at muscle mass or lean mass. We don't look at fat mass. You don't look at water weight. I mean, it's just strictly weight and height. So it really discounts biologic and genetic differences. So the result itself is very misleading. There's a lot of studies out there too, um, or articles that will show you that the overweight category is typically very misrepresented because that is where a lot of athletes fall because they typically have higher lean mass. So their weight goes up, but it's lean mass, which is good to have, but it still sort of puts them in this category that is quote unquote bad. And it's very misleading. And um, we rely, we rely on it a lot in all of healthcare. And again, it doesn't take into consideration those contextual differences between the individuals. So if we have a provider who's listening right now, who feels very wedded to numbers or using that, Mm -hmm. do you have a better way that you would recommend from a numerical standpoint of capturing that type of information or getting an idea of a person's overall health status? I can't say that we know the perfect ratio of lean mass to fat mass that perfectly defines health. We, we don't know that, and I think it would be impossible to get there. What I would tell providers is weigh your patients, get the information that's relevant to the condition for which they are you are treating them for, if weight doesn't impact it, then don't get their weight. You don't need it. But I think more importantly, we have to look at the patient more comprehensively. So don't make assumptions about what they do or don't do. If a patient tells you, I, you know, I, I want to lose weight, I'm, I'm dieting and exercising. Okay, what are you eating? 
how often are you eating? Are you consuming 800 calories a day and you're starving yourself? You know, what does that look like? And I think have more of a, a dialogue with the patient and to find out a little bit more information. And again, don't make an, an assumptions based on how they look or how they appear without sort of diving in, you know, and asking them more uh, questions about, about what that looks like for them. Yeah, I just want to add to that too. You know, especially in pregnancy, I think that that's where these conversations really come up. Um, like, and women are supposed to be gaining weight um, in pregnancy. And, you know, it's, there's like, a, there's some guidelines on how much weight and yada, yada. But I think what it comes down to is we need to make sure that we're having like these shared decision making. All people, for the most part, know that they're supposed to eat a certain way and have so much exercise. Um, you know, how they do that might is obviously going to be different, but they know that. So saying these things isn't necessarily going to be helpful. Right. It's about what their goal is and how you as the clinician can support them in that goal, regardless of their BMI. So we all should be exercising. We all should be eating our fruits and vegetables and mm -hmm. avoiding certain fats and sugars and that type of thing. But what what's our goal? And I and I also I I think I've seen a lot of research recently too about when we get older that being overweight has some protective factors, especially in cognition and I think there's other things I can't really roll them off of the top of my head. But so it's really again about the patient's overall goals of their entire life. So if it's mm -hmm. important for them to be cognitive when they're older, uh, maybe we shouldn't stress so much about being this kind of perfect BMI. Well, and I think you bring up an important point because, you know, when we talk about aging, if you want an individual or an individual wants to maintain functional status, if they want to get on their carpet and play with their grandkids, you have to have lean mass to be able to do that. And you want to maintain lean mass and you're not going to do so by cut, reducing calories and sort of this weight cycling thing where you're reducing calories and gaining weight and reducing calories and gaining weight. You're going to gain fat back much faster and it's going to be much harder to maintain that lean muscle. And that's, you know, what drives our metabolism. That's what allows us to, to function. So, you know, I think we have to be really careful in what we're uh, recommending to, to patients when we talk about that. And like you said, what, what are their goals? What do they want to do and what do they want to accomplish. So in speaking about that, do you have some resources or articles that clinicians might be interested in to either guide them in their practice or learn more about weight stigma, weight bias, and just health issues related to BMI? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I would say, you know, as far as BMI is concerned, that is still unfortunately the gold standard for a lot of things. And but yes, so the CDC does have some information on weight stigma, which I think is fascinating. And then actually the Rudd Center, oh, I think they're out of they've switched a little bit. Don't quote me on this. Are right they now, Yale? Yes, but I think they're at UConn now. They either were at UConn and then now Yale or vice versa. So 
It's R-U-D-D. It's like a health policy center. Um, some of the big researchers are like Kelly Brownell, uh, Rebecca Pearl. You know, those are big names that you'll hear. I think you. the nice thing, too, is you see that it crosses disciplines. So a lot of the weight stigma research is actually coming out of psychology, which I think is fascinating. And I think there's a lot of opportunity for interdisciplinary approaches to, to addressing weight stigma. And we, we certainly still have a lot of work to do. So. So I would like to just ask you kind of what next steps in your research on weight stigma you would like to do. Oh, yeah. I had briefly mentioned this, but I, I'm really, really interested in how weight self-stigma affects health. Um, I would really like to explore that further because I, I think there's a lot of work yet to do. And I think that's really an area that we need to we need to address I think looking at provider communication is important. I'm actually on a small grant right now looking at weight bias among uh, women's health clinicians. So we're using some software to look at interactions with a provider and a patient using a a, a photographic vignette. And then we're also going to be using an implicit association test. So you know, I think first and foremost, those are some of the things that I want to explore. I think, you know, eventually looking at um, some biologic markers would be interesting. So looking at cortisol levels, you know, inflammatory markers, those sorts of things, and looking at kind of the long-term effects that weight stigma might have um, on health. Again, you know, I think there's a lot of opportunity, but we really need to start making some of those connections to more physiologic conditions. So, so we can start addressing that. Can I, I'm going to go back to your implicit association and just put a pitch in for the implicit association test. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we've talked about those on other podcasts, probably been a while, but there is one specifically on weight. So if you, I think just Google implicit association. Yeah, it's it's project implicit. Oh, project implicit. Yeah. And it's out of Harvard. And you can, if you're interested, um, you can see where you land on your implicit biases related to, I think it's, they call it thin versus fat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll do, I'll do that test like once a year and and, and it's it's pretty fascinating. (laughs) Nicole. Okay. I'm going to wrap us up then. All right. Well, April, thank you so much for taking the time to uh, speak with us today and commit to advancing sexual and reproductive health through communication. We sure enjoyed nerding out with you over your dissertation. And of course, I guess in the future, I will then be, spoiler alert, April and Stephanie are actually working on the implicit bias uh, study together. So I guess we have a future episode where I guess I will just interview both of you about that, Sam, <laughs> or about that uh, study, I guess. Uh, so anyways, in five years. In five, <laughs> five years, years. <laughs> when you're done, we'll, we're going to keep this going until then, just so you can be on it to, to share so our listeners can, you know, close some loops. Uh, but do you have any last thoughts you'd like to add before we end? I don't think so. No, I mean, thanks for having me on it. You know, it's such an important topic and one that I'm passionate about. So I'm happy to chat about it with anybody who will willingly listen. <laughs> we do. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thank you. And as always, we hope that you enjoyed another episode of the Woman-Centered Health Podcast. We are always looking for new supporters, sponsors, and guests. So if you'd like to be on our show or know someone who you think would be perfect, let us know. You can find more information on how to support us and contact us on our website at www.womancenteredhealth.com.